All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today we are joined by Oscar Hoagland, the co-founder and CEO of Epidemic Sound. Over his 20-plus year career, Oscar has founded several startups and is known for his bold innovations and proven business results, such as Epidemic Sound, resulting in a $1.4 billion valuation back in 2021. At Epidemic, Oscar is democratizing access to music for storytellers through a digital rights model that is paving the way for creators, everyone from YouTubers and celebrities like the Kardashians to small businesses and to the world's largest brands like Lululemon, Adobe, and Netflix to use their music to take their content to the next level, while at the same time playing and supporting current musicians. So today, Epidemic Sound's music is played for over 1 billion hours on average on YouTube alone. So first off, thank you, Oscar, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Hey, Seamus. Thank you for having me and great meeting you. Absolutely. It's great to jump into things here. So I guess we, before we delve into Epidemic Sound, it's important to understand your background in you know, the media creation space and industry. I know around 15 years ago, you were in the TV production space. And today, it's easier than ever, I would argue, for creators to create content, especially with tools like Epidemic Sound and being able to film studio video off your iPhone. What was that journey like producing back in the day? And what was that experience like? So I think in order to answer that question, just one further step back. So prior to going into TV production, I was very much a numbers guy. So I worked at BCG. I was a management consultant and I was everything but creative, if you ask myself and sort of people around me at that time. But I obviously found myself in the wrong environment. So I wasn't being inspired. I looked at my closest boss. And when I realized that I didn't want her life or his, or her boss's life or the next person's life, that sort of something had to give. And so I quit and I went on a little bit of a soul searching excursion and I met with tons of companies. And then eventually I met with this TV production company called Zodiac and they were making TV shows. And so there was an element of I'd always love entertainment and content and storytelling. And so I thought, so why not to, I'll try to dive in? Little did I know that that would be one of the best decisions in my entire career because I found myself suddenly in a context where I was a fish out of water. I was this different guy from everyone else. I was the numbers guy in the creative industry, which was super rare. And so suddenly my contribution in different meetings in terms of budgets and strategy and putting things together was valuable because it was scarce. And so I, I went from sort of enjoying working to absolutely falling in love with my work. And so I got to make TV shows. And as you reference, we were doing TV production. And for a long period of time, that was super cool because... TV back then in general, and in, in Sweden in particular, which is where I'm from, which is northern parts of Europe by the polar circle. We're a tiny country. We're 10 million people. We speak a ridiculous language. It's very empty up here. And so what we do is we watch TV. And so playing a small part in making the TV shows that people spoke about around the water coolers and the coffee machines come Monday morning was important. I felt like valuable and important to society. But that started to change as the internet started to take off and it went from cats on skateboard to something more substantial. I think we were well positioned to see that. So rounding off on your question here, I think that in the early days, like we stumbled upon storytelling and we found two problems, basically. It was really difficult adding music to content. And so the short answer to your question is what it was like. It was awful. It was like really difficult finding music, adding music, paying for it, licensing it. There were no tools. There was no product in terms of soundtracking stories. So people were using less music rather than more. And that was the inflection, the starting point for us. 
Yeah, and in terms of, you know, creating a valuable contribution, especially in the internet space, you mentioned on a separate podcast that you wanted to contribute to the internet generation by soundtracking the internet and have a valuable contribution and say, oh, yeah, I built out that part of the internet. Where did the idea for Epidemic start? I know you mentioned a little bit how it was difficult to license certain music, but where did you decide to say, hey, let, I need to create a company around this problem? So I think there are a couple of elements to that answer. One is, is a little bit more of an anecdote. So in Sweden, we have something called uh, military service. So when you're in your, when you're 18, 19, everyone has to do their military service for like a year or two. And there are a few different ways of doing it. You can either try and not do it at all, which a lot of people do. You can do it short term, or you can go all in and really do it properly and hopefully get some kind of training and traits out of it. And I remember when I was at the, the place where you do the tryouts, there was this poster on the wall. It's odd, but it really stuck with me because the poster said something along the lines. It was a graphic and it said, like, here's what you here's what your parents think that you can pull off in terms of endurance. And it was a, a graph. And the next to it was here's what your friends think. And that was slightly higher. Here's what your partner or spouse might think, and it was slightly higher. Here's what you might think, and it was slightly higher. Here's what the army think you can pull off, and it was even higher. And then here's what you actually can pull off, and it was a very, very high sort of part of the graph. And so the image stuck with me throughout my career because of it. It's it's always encouraged me to sort of like when when in your life are you going to try and do the be the best version of yourself that you can be. Like, what are you saving yourself for? A lot of people are training and you're educating yourself and you're sort of trying to accumulate knowledge. And at some point you need to ask yourself the question, yeah, but for what? When am I going to put it, all of my chips in the ring and go all in and really see how far I can take something? And that was one part of Epidemic because Epidemic is the sixth company that I've co-founded and the others have been dry runs where I've learned how the content creation business, I started a multi-channel network, I worked in TV production. There have been a few gaming companies. There have been podcasting companies. But as we stumbled upon music sort of in the realm of storytelling, as I alluded to before, there were two problems. We found that music creators were having a very tough time supporting themselves because the music industry business model with royalties and whatnot wasn't really working. It wasn't based on technical insights. It wasn't transparent. It wasn't fair. It wasn't on balance. So that was an issue, like how can music creators actually support themselves without being dependent on so many different middlemen? And the flip side of that coin was content creators. As I alluded to, adding music to content was very, very difficult. And like to put into context, music for content is a bit like taste to food. It's incredibly important. If you don't get that right, the food is just nourishing. It's not memorable. It's not incredible. And so it's very, very important. And despite that, it was all broken. So we stumbled upon these two problems and back to your question, I think the thing that really made me excited in terms of how we wanted to connect the dots when we'd seen these problems, we'd seen the, the internet evolve from being first off very tech centric and then eventually picture centric. And we knew that it was going to be video centric over time. Like we started to connect these dots and ultimately I got to a point where I, I came to realize that it's very likely that 20, 30 years from now, like I'm going to be walking in downtown Stockholm and I'm going to be there with one of my grandkids and hopefully she's going to look at me at some point and she's going to go, granddad, you almost blew up the planet by destroying the environment. But thank you. Thankfully, you saved sort of, you saved the day the last minute and <laughs> turned that all around. So we're here to live another day. And besides that, like your generation's enduring contribution instead is that you're the generation that invented the Internet. 
And I, I, I nod. And so we head off to, a, to an ice cream store or something like that. And she goes like, that's so cool because the internet is at the core. It's at the foundation of everything we do on planet Earth. It's how I shop, how I educate, how I entertain myself. It's how I interact with my friends, express myself. Like, you built that infrastructure. How cool is that? And we high five and we leave the candy store eventually. And then she's going to go, but granted, if that was the case, if that, if that, if that was your generation's legacy move, can you remind me, like, how did you contribute? What was your role in your generation's defining moment? And this notion has always stuck with me and my co-founders, and we're now almost 600 employees and hundreds and hundreds of music creators that we work with. Like, what's our contribution? And we came to the insight, like, what would be possibly better than if we get to say in that discussion, look, we saw what was happening and we decided we want to try and help soundtrack the internet. What if we can help the internet become this incredibly rich mosaic of all the different stories, all the different tales, everything we ever created? What if we can democratize access to music and emotions and sound effects and feelings so that all these stories, all this content, all this entertainment, all this education material is just rich and vibrant and so inspiring to participate and look at and, and listen to? What if that's our contribution? And that just filled us with so much energy, so much passion that we felt as if that's something really worth applying yourself several decades for that's something worth building and so we did yeah it really is all about creating that long-standing impact on the globe i noticed you mentioned the importance of music and content creation i know myself when i was very early uh with the podcast and stuff like that i started creating these little youtube shorts and in the beginning i decided to have no music it was just me talking for 30 seconds i noticed i got like 100 or 200 views basically no reach then i started implementing adding some music in the background changing some video transitions here and there i know some of them were e easily getting a couple hundred thousand views right off the bat so definitely music is one of those key things that have been engaging in the audience we even see this with tiktok nowadays on how they're changing the way music artists can now get discovered on the platform but when you were starting epidemic how did the collaboration between the artists and your platform originally start for them to start earning some wages so it was a multi-step process for a couple of different reasons. The first reason I think came to down to trust because at the core of what we were saying was that we saw that the traditional music industry hinged around representation. And what that means is that as a songwriter or as an artist, you would create a piece of content and you wouldn't be willing to sell that to anyone. Instead, you would have other entities represent some of your rights. So you'd have a record label and a publisher and a neighboring rights organization and a PRO and a manager, and everyone would hold percentage points and splits and shares. And in the case of something sort of getting traction and distribution, that would then generate royalty. And a year down the line or two years down the line, assuming that all the forms had been filled out correctly, the people had crossed the T's and dot the I's and spelled your name correctly and the right percentage point was in the right column, you, there would be a trickle-down effect of some royalty. And everyone felt entitled to this royalty, but seeing as no one owned the revenue stream, nobody took responsibility for building out the infrastructure, for building out the actual accountability, the technological platform needed to make this truly scalable. And so the industry really didn't work. And so this is where we had our first big challenge, where we placed this massive contrarian bet because we reached out to the music creator industry and said, look, we think that there's a better way of distributing your content. We think that if we were allowed to acquire all of the rights, the royalty rights to your music, we think that that would give us the incentive to go invest hundreds of millions of dollars over the next couple of decades and build out the cultural infrastructure needed to soundtrack the internet. 
would help you collect royalty across all the different VSPs like Spotify, the VSPs like TikTok and YouTube will connect with all these different commercial entities who currently are terrified of using music because if you don't clear all the rights, you can get sued. And thousands of companies have been and some have been crucified and gone under as a result. And that was a very compelling notion, but it was quite difficult to persuade music creators to part with their rights because they were sacred. And so in the early days, it was a lot about explaining who we were, what we stood for, showcasing basically that with five co-founders in between us, we had almost 100 years experience within the creator economy because we'd been music producers, creators, singer-songwriters, storytellers, entrepreneurs, and then some. And so we got to encourage a few people and we started to build out the roster and the repertoire. And we got to a point where we realized that we needed 5,000 tracks to call ourselves a catalog because we'd painstakingly sort of worked our way through a couple of other catalogs and that seemed to be the cutoff point. And so we started to accumulate tracks. And as we scaled and we grew, we started to complement our business model. So in the early days, we would pay music creators up front. So hundreds of dollars and then eventually thousands of dollars. And then as our music started to hit scale and we started to soundtrack large chunks of the internet and whatnot, people found our music to be really compelling. And the comments in YouTube and TikTok and everywhere were like, this music is amazing. I want to listen to this on Spotify and on Apple and on Deezer and Amazon. And we hadn't uploaded the tracks because we were trying to soundtrack video and the internet. But we eventually did. And we saw that that was highly compelling and that started to generate tons of royalty. So we connected that royalty and then we looked back at our music creators and we said that, huh, in the old music world, you typically keep maybe 5 10% of this if you're a music creator. We think that's a pretty shitty deal. And we said, let's just split it right down the middle. So we'll give you 50%. So like the residual of, of what we create after we soundtrack content, that's that people love the music and we can launch artists this way. And we started sharing that revenue with music creators. And that took on like wildfire because music creator had never seen that kind of distribution engine, that kind of revenue generation, let alone that kind of fair split straight down the middle because we had no record labels in between us we had no publishers there were no middlemen to feed so we could take all the revenue and share it 50 50. and that's when things hit an inflection point because that started to spread among the music creator community and then everyone wanted to sign up with us and so we went from having hundreds of people applying to tens of thousands of people applying and so i think that's sort of getting it right and being long terms and being very clear about who we're optimizing for it's the storytellers and the music creators like get those formulas right and stick to your guns, do the right thing. And then you you compound. And then after a while, so it became, yeah, it started to grow exponentially. Yeah, and you mentioned Spotify. Spotify, when they were first starting out and growing, they had a big issue where they had deals with record companies falling apart as the record labels kept demanding more money, even when Spotify wasn't even profitable yet. Now, granted, this is a completely different situation, but what would you say would probably be the biggest challenge you had developing the platform, and how did you overcome it? So I would say that there are a few things that come to mind, and if there Fairly tactical, but I guess you could say they're strategic as well. So the first one I think has to do with how you position yourself and whether or not you you market what you do. So I think the jury's still out whether or not we made the right decision. But what we chose to do in the early days was that we chose to have a very low profile. We didn't beat our chest and sort of go on a PR rampage and tell everyone that, look, we're epidemic. We do things differently. We'd like to try and soundtrack the Internet. This is what we do. Because we were based in Europe, we'd seen quite a few copycat companies coming out of Germany, especially who like replicate typically successful US-based firms, try and sort of take over markets in, in Europe and then try and sell those markets back to the initial founders. 
And we felt that we wanted to get to product market fit by ourselves. We wanted to make our mistakes in splendid isolation. And we believe that if we can get to scale and hit escape velocity and create big enough moats and flywheels before people know what hit them, it will it'd be much more difficult for people to come to come and challenge us. And so we stuck with that strategy and we had a very low profile. Now, the challenge associated with that was that we were a super well-kept secret in Sweden. It was more difficult for us to hire people. It was more difficult for us to raise funding. You can argue that it ultimately worked out because we got to the inflection point. We got to the tipping point. We hit escape velocity. We raised funds. Today, we've raised more than $100 million in, in, in primary capital. And I can add out some of the most sort of successful investors in the world in my cap table. So it did work out. But it, it, we're 15 years in, and it was a struggle to get to that point. So we weren't really helped by this really sexy, splendid brand that was a shiny attribute that would attract talent and people sort of day one. But typically, if we got people in through the door and we got to tell them our story, our hit rate was basically 100%. Like we could encourage everyone to join the bandwagon. But I think that was one. Second one was maybe we went to tech company from day one. We came very much from content creation, the legal side of things, and sort of creating a very scalable business. A few years in, we realized that, wow, this is product market fit. The TAM is huge. Like every single company on the planet Earth is going to want to create content and video is going to be the way that the internet works. They all need soundtracks. Like, holy crap, we're talking about hundreds of millions of companies that need access to music to tell stories. And they can't all use Beyonce tracks for like $100 million per pop because that's not going to fly. Like this is a huge problem to solve. And scaling that and making sure that we expanded ourselves and we became like product-led company with engineering culture, with some data-driven decision-making as opposed to our origins, like building that additional skill set, that second layer of, of instinct. So that was the second thing for us to solve. I think I'll stop there. But those are some of the examples of, of challenges along the way. And I just want to highlight that you, you don't have to be this sort of product protege person from day one, but you do need to understand like putting a band together, you want different people. You want sort of... You want a numbers person, you want a product person, you want somebody who's deeply passionate about form function. It's basically building a company is a bit like building a band where you have different members. You need to ultimately sing from the same sheet and appreciate the same kind of direction in terms of what you want to achieve. But you want people when you look around you who are quite different from yourself. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, especially like hiring your weaknesses, one of the things we've talked about before, and it's a very important thing to do, especially when building a company. Now, I think partnerships, I think, are one of these things that can be tend to be more underrated, especially for early stage or first-time founders. A lot of first-time founders that I've talked to try to access their key market. In many cases, we'll use paid ads or something of the sort. But with partnerships, you can use to your advantage of who currently has access or influence in the market you're targeting and reach them through that channel. What were some hmm. of the ways that, or the key ways that you employed partnerships at Epidemic and why were they so important to building out your business? You're absolutely, absolutely right, Seamus. It's been part of our playbook from day one and it's basically how we've done everything. So if I were to look at some of the most step change oriented moments of our company history, it's been about understanding partnerships. So step one, before we decided to try and soundtrack the internet, we said we need to start somewhere. And the initial starting point was broadcasters because they were like super dominant at the time. They were very prolific storytellers and they were utterly spoiled in terms of they got access to any kind of music out there because there basically was only one kind of music. Our genre wasn't really invented back then. And so we set ourselves a target. If, if we can persuade them, if we build products and create music, which is good enough for them, the impact we can have when we release that music across the entire internet is going to be surreal. 
So let's start there. Let's give ourselves a proper challenge. But so starting to work with the broadcasters, after a while, we came to realize that sort of this is how it works out. So in Sweden, there were by 5,000 prolific content creators or producers, editors who made the most successful commercial TV shows. And we had no chance in reaching all of them, persuading all of them to use our products, let alone sort of paying them for their time and their efforts. So that was like, that's a showstopper. Then we look one step up the value chain. So who tends to hire these 5,000 freelance content creators? And there were basically 50 prolific production companies who made all the hit shows. And we looked at them and we went like, holy crap, we can't reach out to all of these 50 production companies, let alone sort of encourage them to use our product. Like that's not going to work. So we dug down even further into the value chain and we looked sort of, and we saw on top of them, there were five prolific broadcasters who commissioned basically all of the shows from the 50 production companies who in turn hired these 5,000 producers. And we went, ah, what if we partner with the broadcasters? We can get audiences with these five broadcasters. We can persuade them how our music can help bring their content to life. It can traverse different platforms. It can sort of, it's much more efficient. It's much better for them from a commercial perspective and from a creative perspective. And so we did. And so we partnered with the broadcasters. We tailored sort of an upside for them. And the broadcaster was in a position so that they could encourage all the production companies to start using us and they could encourage all of the editors to use us. So with five di discussions, we got 5,000 prolific sort of beta testers to our product and off we went. So the partnership with broadcasters and understanding the value chain was key in unlocking broadcasters. And then we've just tried to replicate that in everything we do. So we always try and look at who's the 800 pound gorilla in the sub-segment we're going after. So when it was broadcasters, we started with, um, with TV4 in our, in our home territory when we eventually started to soundtrack YouTube and we discovered the multi-channel networks, I cornered a guy called Courtney Holt over in Santa Monica in California a couple of years ago at an event when he was running Maker Studios, which was the 800-pound gorilla in the multi-channel network space. Got them to sign up. Once they'd signed up, we got all the other multi-channel networks. So now we power 85% of all of them. Um, when we started to work with the DSPs, we reached out to Spotify first because they were the 800-pound gorilla once we got them excited about what we were doing then we got all the other dsps so i think partnerships is a great way to try and understand how like the value chain works your place in it how you can add value how you need to tailor that to different parts of the value chain how the knock-on effects accumulate and compound but also it, it's a it's a way to short circuit a system and get to your point like much more traction much quicker with sort of less friction involved Totally. And before we wrap it up here, what would you say would probably be what's next with the music industry? We've seen a big shift on how music is discovered, like we mentioned a few minutes earlier with TikTok and now Spotify as well. What do you think is next for the music industry? I think that there are a couple of things going on at the same time. One is like the complete democratization of creating music, which first off, I saw the cost of getting access to recording facilities just sort of collapsed to zero basically and so that got democratized from a technical perspective we're seeing the second wave of democratization now through two letters ai basically and so now we're adding that into the uh, into the mix and so we're helping people to augment their skills and so to your earlier point like you want to hire to to cover for your weaknesses if you're a songwriter or if, and you do great melodies but your beat skills aren't that great or if you're a top liner but you can't sort of put together the rest of the mix you can use ai to help cover for the areas that you're not as proficient in and so there's a massive amount of democratization going on 
But I also think that there's a huge amount of globalization going on. Content is sort of shifting and sort of from, from being very regional, things are becoming much more global. There's a, a greater acceptance. There's like faster cycles in terms of fads and trends are spreading all around the world. Like the entire world gets infatuated with Squid Game one day and then it's a tiger show from Netflix, which now eludes me. I forget the name, but sort of we're seeing content go global and the same is happening with music, right? And so I think that the opportunities are like ever increasing. But at the same time, getting uh, production is becoming easier, but distribution, uh, getting your sort of 15 seconds of, of fame is becoming more and more difficult. And so I, th I think those are some of the trends we're seeing. And yeah, I think I'll pause at that. But needless to say, interesting times indeed. A lot of opportunity, both for music creators and for storytellers, like how they can work together is sort of, there's never been a better or a stronger case for even more partnerships, not just between companies, but between individuals. Great storytellers looking for great music and vice versa. You add them together and that's incredibly powerful. Definitely. And AI is going to be one of those interesting ones. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But all right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below and share it with a friend. And thank you, Oscar, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Seamus. Take care. Appreciate it.